Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, Chair of the Economics Department at the University of San Francisco. This program is sponsored by USF's Master of Science degree in Applied Economics, which teaches the economics frameworks and data science skills needed to understand and contribute to the tech economy, and by USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation in the Asia Pacific. My guest today is Brian Wong. Like me, Brian was born and raised in Silicon Valley, but we actually met um, later in life uh, in Shanghai when he joined the small consulting firm I was working for at the time. Um, after I left to join academia, we stayed in touch, um, and I remember meeting him a few years later and him telling me about how he had joined uh, some kind of Chinese tech startup run by a strangely charismatic former English teacher. Now, my American friends in China always kind of seem to get drawn into these oddball adventures of various sorts, like acting in Chinese movies, starring in game shows, hiking the entire Great Wall, playing in a rock band, things like that. So honestly, I didn't think too much about it at the time. Um, they'd usually come out of it with some great stories and then, you know, get a real job in real life sometime later. Um, but anyway, that startup uh, was Alibaba, which Google tells me as of this morning has a market cap of $165 billion dollars. And Brian was the 52nd employee and the first American on their team. So he's got a little bit more than a story out of it. Um, and this story that Brian was involved in, though, is, is very much, you know, more than just a cute anecdote to tell his buddies and his grandchildren, um, but also a very important story in the development of China's economy and the world tech economy. Um, fortunately for all of us, uh, Brian recognized this and has taken the time over the past couple of years to write a book that doesn't just uh, you know tell his story, but also gets into uh, some analytical depth about how Alibaba works as an organization and what lessons it might have for other tech businesses, startups, uh, and also for countries and organizations interested in what they can learn from this piece of China's development success story. Brian, welcome. Hey, Peter. Thanks so much. That's a great intro, by the way. You <laughs> recapped a lot of. We're really glad to have you. Yeah, yeah. my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so that was my my little you know uh, intersections with you. But why don't you give us a more a more complete picture of your background and you know the story that led up to you getting involved in Alibaba and deciding to to join them? Okay. Well, you know, it's it's much of what you just said. Um, like you, I was born in Palo Alto, and I think you'll recall Palo Alto. Um, at that time was not nearly as fancy uh, and sophisticated as it is today, um, maybe for the better in some well, ways. Well, I'll say I, I came from Sunnyvale. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to say I, I come from Sunnyvale. So we're from down south and you guys up north in Palo Alto were like the fancy people compared to us. But right, fine. yeah, it's definitely all, not, not where even so, not where it is today. It's all relative. But, um, you know, it was it was still pretty simple life. Um, we lived in Professorville which meant that a lot of academics around us who were affiliated with Stanford and other schools and a few techies that worked at HP. But I had a pretty uneventful suburban life, you know, playing soccer, little league baseball. And I, I thought I would be a doctor, you know, in my life. My father was a physician and that sounds like a very steady career path. Um, but that got all derailed uh, in college when I went to do a language program in Beijing. And like you said, you know, it kind of sparks the curiosity um, of many who go and travel and particularly China at that time really kind of opened my eyes to how much potential there was in the world to, um, you know, help make change in a society that was still very much, um, you know, transforming from a, a planned economy into a market one. So um, after that experience in the summer, I ended up doing grad school in China and um, thought, hey, you know, rather than uh, healthcare and, and the motivation of healthcare was do the greatest good for the greatest number. You know, you, I, I thought maybe a, a career in health policy uh, would be a great uh, and very rewarding experience. But I said, wow, if you can change this society in some way, maybe um, it doesn't have to be through the healthcare track. And so that's when you and I met uh, our first, my first job um, in a consulting firm. Uh, and that was an interesting experience because I, I got to see a lot of kind of the frontier markets. Um, in what was emerging in China, particularly around kind of the industrialization where you had a lot of manufacturing taking place and a lot of um, foreign multinationals trying to figure out their market entry strategies, as you'll remember. Um, but that also got derailed. Um, there was the financial crisis, and this was not the 2008 one. This was 1997. Um, that was the Asian financial crisis. And that actually sent me all the way back to uh, San Francisco with the same firm. But, um, you know, 
like every young person in search of answers, I said, well, okay, I've, I've done the consulting thing. What else is there in terms of trying to make change and impact? Oh, let's try the public sector. So I did a short stint um, in, in San Francisco uh, government. Uh, I was working for the mayor at the time. His name was Willie Brown. And that was a very eye-opening experience from a kind of local politics perspective. It gave me uh, insight into kind of how the public sector really intersects with society and, and, and what its role is. Um, but I was fortunate enough at that time that I also had the chance to meet uh, Jack Ma who in 1999 was coming to Silicon Valley to do some fundraising with um, his CFO, Joe, who's someone um, that I knew from before. Joe was kind enough to introduce me to Jack um, on that trip. As m- many people know, you know, Jack met with like 30 VCs and didn't raise a single dollar, but I was very fortunate enough to meet him. And what uh, really struck me in our conversation, we I remember we this day we met at the St. Francis Hotel and we were just having tea with him and Joe, and Jack had this charisma about what he really wanted to do with Alibaba um, and to change, uh, you know, China and the society uh, through e-commerce. And that e-commerce was really focused on helping small businesses, um, you know, connect with the world. And I said, well, if you could do that, that is very substantive. That's also using technology as a way to uh, impact um, you know, society in a positive way, let me give it a shot. And so um, that started my career at Alibaba, uh, as you mentioned. Um, I thought it would be two years and then, and then do something else to, to kind of experience uh, that, that um, kind of uh, work um, in, in a, a tech company in China, but it, it turned out to be you know, almost two decades. So the book that you mentioned, uh, the Tao of Alibaba, which I, I have just um, completed and will be published, um, is really uh, a, an attempt to explain the path that Alibaba took uh, in light of the external events that were happening at that time, um, but also from the inside uh, to reveal kind of the way of thinking that um, led the decisions, um, you know, of the team and the management, but also an ethos that I think is uh, useful for anyone today. That's trying to do a, a, a startup. That's great. Yeah, that's a that's a good intro to like how you came to it. You know what what uh, background you brought. So actually, one thing, one sort of uh, interim thing I think is interesting is that you did uh, take a break from Alibaba and uh, went to Wharton to you know one of the America's premier business schools to get your MBA uh, and then ultimately came back. Um, so. You know, you got that kind of uh, you know classic U.S. business school education. How did that relate to your experiences before and after at Alibaba? Like, what do you see as things that were there lessons that were confirmed? Like your professors told you that, and you nodded, and like, yeah, that's how it works. Or were there and what things uh, did, worked out uh, kind of differently from from what they recommended? Sure. No, like I I left uh, Alibaba after two years to go to Wharton uh, mainly because I felt like. Those two years uh, at that time, I mean, keep in mind, we started in the apartment just at the very kind of tail end when we were still in Hangzhou and then um, moved to an office. But things were still very chaotic within the company and we were trying all sorts of things that didn't seem to work. Um, And I wondered, you know, why are we spending our time just running in circles? And I said, maybe if I um, go to business school and really learn how business should be done properly. Because keep in mind, in college, I was I was a English lit major in pre-med. So that wasn't very relevant to doing business. I thought I had a lot more that I needed to learn on, on that front. So um, I went to Wharton and it was obviously a very rigorous education around um, business principles, business management, um, you know, financial analysis and those things. And I think those tools um, obviously are useful in business. But uh, one thing I realized is you have to also put it in the context of the market that you're in and, and sort of calibrate when you use those tools. Um, you know, China and the Internet in China at that time was very, very uh, much a, a rudimentary industry. And there was no infrastructure like retail um, sector. Even the, the, the financial sector was still very rudimentary. Um, and uh a lot of that stuff had to be built from scratch. And so where, what's the precedence that you have to, to lean on in those cases? So um, 
I would say that in some ways I had to unlearn some of my business school stuff when I went back to uh, Alibaba. So after Wharton, I, I spent two years in New York working at a large uh, multinational firm and then um, got invited back to Alibaba uh, to to lead some of their international operations. And even at that point, um, the company was still very much in, in its sort of development phase, although it had grown, obviously. Um, but I had to like, uh, you know, sort of modify my mindset to a, to a market that was still very raw and, and underdeveloped. And so I think there are certain principles that came in more use than, than others that I, you know, learned at Wharton, um, but were not emphasized because I think a lot of people, when you're in business school, you're thinking about, you know, going to Wall Street and, and using these financial skills for modeling or, you know, these frameworks and consulting. But if, if contextually they don't quite apply to a market that doesn't have any of those things, then, then, then what do you lean on? And that's where I realized there was something kind of bigger to all this, which is, you know, these fluffy concepts that we learned in Wharton, but didn't pay attention to until probably most of us, you know, decades afterwards, things like mission, vision, and values. Um, and, you know, uh, how does that guide a company in its early stage in terms of its formation, but also how does it define the character of the company and the kind of people you attract? And then as you're moving through the development stage, how does that um, kind of keep the company on on track when you're making decisions that there are no precedents for? So I would say that that was one critical factor um, that I realized is more important than than I than I recognized is the the importance of a mission, vision, and value in the organization. Second, I, I would say is um, uh, you know this Jack talked about this. Um, uh, for you know, it, towards the end of his his uh, time when he was uh, at Alibaba, this concept of leadership having IQ, EQ, and something called LQ, LQ being love quotient, uh, and a lot of people laughed. They said, "Oh, that's that's unusual." Um, you know, what do you mean by mm -hmm. that? And really, what that refers to is kind of having empathy and uh, a big heart in the things that you're doing, um, so that you know, um, you, you kind of take the bigger picture in mind when you're building a business. It's not just about purely profits that your company is trying to generate. It's not um, just about coming up with, you know, the most sophisticated technology. It's how does it apply to society? And um, I think that got me to my third kind of takeaway from all this is that you can build a business that does good for business and good for society. And Alibaba, in my mind, part of the reason why I wrote this book is I wanted to show the world why um, or, or, or a case uh, of an example where you had a, a wildly successful business um, built on, you know, all of the technology and, and these, these principles that, that we generally will look at, but that it can also um, have a positive impact on addressing many of society's problems in this being in China. Um, some fundamental problems that they were trying to overcome as an emerging market. Uh, this company provided the solutions to many of those problems. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great perspective. So I think let's let's address those in turn. So um, we'll uh, we'll get back to second this question of you know how uh, Alibaba sort of contributed to China's development model and and you know um, and maybe what what lessons could be learned by other companies or countries for that. I think that's that's really important. You know, I think if we're going to say, you know, what, what brought the most people out of poverty in the, you know, the past 50 years, it's really China's, uh, China's success story and economic development. And there's lots of people who would like to take credit for that mm. or, you know, not give credit for that. But um, certainly Alibaba um, in the past 20 years has been uh, an important part of that. Um, but, uh, but first let's talk about, um, yeah, how did, uh, how did this, how does this company work? So we've got, you told us about, uh, uh, Love quotient. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so okay. So all you need is love. So if we put John Lennon uh, in charge of your uh, your company, oh, yeah. um, maybe. Well, I mean, I could see that that. So part of the thing could they, you know, just me opining is that you know, as an outsider, like definitely the the uh, Jack Ma's charisma and enthusiasm been a huge part of that, and his mm. his kind of. Uh, you know, goofiness uh, as well as is, is all kind of a package. Um, 
but you know, how does that translate into an actual company um, working? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think what it does is it is it provides uh, people kind of a north star in terms of why they're even at the company, and then what they're trying to achieve. Um, and uh, you know, when thinking about maybe in the first iteration, you know, what 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 we're trying to do with the business to business platform, it's it's recognizing that small businesses are kind of the the heart and soul of of the private sector economy, and that this is um, a growing uh, sector that needs help, but they couldn't compete with the um, either the state owned enterprises or the large corporations because they didn't have the means nor the capabilities. And so in, in a lot of ways that that LQ sort of aspect um, is, is a motivating factor in terms of saying, you know, we're here to help the little guy. We're here to kind of do what we can to provide a, a level playing field and we'll do whatever it takes to, to, to achieve that. Um, and I think that's, that's a motivating factor, but also it helps guide decisions when thinking about strategy. Um, and when you go down to execution, you know, when you run into problems, you, um, you will say, okay, well, what, what's in the best interest of these people we're trying to serve? And, you know, I, I know that we, we talk about these things, um, often in kind of business talking, you know, um, customer centric or, or whatnot, but when you put it kind of more with, with an emotional sort of element to it and it, and it's sincere, uh, in terms of what the company stands for. And, and what, what I do believe is that, you know, when I, when I do this um, entrepreneur training courses, I always ask the students, I say, okay, so let's start off with, um, tell, why don't you guys tell me what your company mission is? Um, you know, most of the class, they'll stop and then they'll pick up their phone and then start scrolling for some information, probably their, their homepage or their corporate profile, and they have to look it up. And that just says to me that this hasn't been internalized, right? The purpose of the organization has not been really uh, uh, internalized in a way that it's at the tip of their tongue and they know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Um, right. So, they just paid a, a consultant or a marketing person to uh, to write something up that sounded good, and but they don't actually think about it on a daily basis. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one aspect of this, um, you know, this LQ, but I also think that just internally caring for um, your, your team members in a way that you're, you're also trying to develop them. And one, one thing that we talked about in terms of leadership principles is that, you know, your job as a, as a leader is to um, ensure that your, your team members, the individuals become the best that they can be in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, uh, contrary to a lot of the, um, I don't know the, the the conversations around nine nine six and whatnot. I mean, it, it sounds like a sweat factory, you know, in a lot of these tech companies. And you know, um, there at Alibaba, there there's very much a conscious conscientious focus on trying to help um, develop and enable the individuals at the firm, so that whatever they're doing, whether they're working nine nine six or some other hours, like it's it's geared towards something that is important to them as individuals. And I think that's also where this kind of LQ comes into play. So part of the, you know, that that's easier to do and good when, you know, you, you're a growing firm with high demand has, um, but, you know, then sometimes uh, you have to lay people off. Has Alibaba ever faced that where, you know, you love people, you're trying to develop them. And then it's like, oh shoot, we got to cut costs. We can't do everything. That's just because it's cool. It makes us feel good because, yeah. you know, we got to at least, you know, balance the books. Oh Yeah. No, I mean, in, in particularly, I think um, recently there's been <laughs> difficulty, you know, in 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 that uh, regard. I think the first thing, um, what you know, what what they normally would do is is try and find a, a role for the individual rather than fire them immediately. Try and find a role that they can play that you can utilize their skills um, in other departments or other uh, divisions or other functions before you. Um, have to to you know eliminate them um and that that's the general practice uh so it's it's a bit more sort of compassionate i guess in a way you kind of give them an opportunity but um you know when it comes to uh you know financial uh downturns and and things that you have to kind of be very decisive on um yeah i i think that that also is is 
Well, you look at it this way. I mean, what's uh, what's in the best interest of the individual and the and the company? You have to kind of mediate that by um, facing the reality, but also give them a, a you know a soft uh, exit um, if that's the case. So, um, so one one crucial thing about um, Alibaba is that it's a, a tech firm, but not led by a tech guy. I mean, a lot, you know, obviously anyone by the time they're, they're a CEO, they're not like writing code and, you know, solving, solving bugs or anything, but, um, but most of the, uh, but not all, you know, many of the leaders like of, of the tech firm started sort of in the nitty gritty of like, uh, of this, this foundational stuff, so they understand how it works, but that's, um, uh, that's not Jack's, uh, background. So how, how did it work having someone who's I mean, I was just thinking about like, I guess the other thing like that started the nineties was, uh, was Dilbert cartoons, right? <laughs> like Dilbert cartoons were all about the engineers being super annoyed about bosses who had all kinds of visions. You know, of course they hated their boss, but like still this, the, that thing of like the boss who had all sorts of grandiose ideas and then let the poor engineers down in the cubicles trying to make it work, uh, kind of suffering. So, um, why, why is that not how it felt? I'm sure sometimes if, you know, for everyone, it, nothing's ever perfect. So it's not like it may have never felt that way, but why, why wasn't that the main theme of, uh, Alibaba? How did his, uh, despite of, or because of his, his lack of technical expertise, you know, uh, make this thing a success? Well, I mean, there was a lot of suffering, um, particularly at the beginning and, you know, I'm sure, uh, throughout, throughout the, uh, the development of the company, um, you know, up till, you know, even today, but I think that this this goes back to what we talked about those those softer sort of elements that maybe we don't quite appreciate um, in, uh, in in our business school learning is is linking it to a purpose and um, these you know these engineers sort of will take pride in working through a problem uh, and if if they can solve the problem or or provide the solution then the rewards are that much more. Uh, you know, satisfying um, or inspiring. Uh, so, so I think that you know that that is a, is a big motivating factor, and that really relies on kind of how your le- leader is able to um, sort of engage and communicate with the team members. It's true, Jack didn't have um, a traditional background that many of the uh, entrepreneurs at that time, uh, you know, did have. You know, many of them were you know, PhDs, some of them, you know, graduated from overseas, uh, like MIT and whatnot. And these were the people he was up against. And a lot of people said, well, how, how on earth can an English teacher go head to head with um, these guys? And I think part of this is Jack's uh, ability to to engage, but also connect um, the right people together so that you can have that um, effective mix of, of you know, engineering and, and marketing and management and finance. Um, you know, if you look at his team composition, he had experts in each of these areas and some of them with very impressive backgrounds. And you wonder how he was able to convince them to come uh, be part of the, the team. And I think that's the are also an important skill and art of leadership that uh, he was able to bring to the table and then allow them to work effectively together. So, so why don't we talk uh, concretely, actually, and, and one of the, um, I should say, I'm actually teaching a course this semester in, in the grad program for uh, on uh, the economics of platforms um, and, you know, kind of uh, competition strategy between them. So um, how how did, uh, you know, we've talked, you've been talking more about like internally in the vision of like, how did Alibaba become kind of the dominant uh, platform in China, you know, in uh Back in the early in the early two thousands, as you said, you know it was a struggle for everyone. Like I, uh, for Stanford, I wrote a case study uh, about EachNet, which was later bought out by eBay. And you know, uh, certainly my first instinct, or most people would be like, oh, well, now eBay's entered the market, and these you know Chinese startups with you know less tech and less experience, you know, they're they're surely going to get wiped out. Um, but that didn't happen. So so um, in that instance or in others, you wanted to, uh, you're familiar with how, what is it about? Um, the platform strategy um, at Alibaba that that's led it to become so dominant. Yeah, I mean, look, this this uh, case I think has been discussed, I'm sure, quite a bit. Um, but my and and people have you know there there are various interpretations. But you know, looking at this from from my vantage point, I think you could say there was some some you know technical aspects, but then also kind of the the bigger picture. 
And, you know, often what people talk about is localization, like how eBay and even PayPal for that matter, um, for that matter, uh, were, were trying to make decisions about the China market uh, from, you know, remotely from Silicon Valley. And basically they took the uh, eBay model and kind of transplanted it into China. Uh, despite having, you know, each net as, as a partner, uh, a lot of the, the UI, UX was um, premised on kind of the eBay uh, designs that they used in the U.S. Um, and that kind of plays to a much more kind of clean and, and simple uh, sort of, you know, design. Uh, whereas a lot of what the Chinese users at that time were looking for was something much more um, lively and kind of, in some ways, people would say messy. Um, so there, were, there was, a, you know, this difference in terms of stylistically how the, 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 the product was presented. Um, but but also obviously there was the payment aspect right because there were such so few credit card uh, users at the time and um, people trying to use PayPal as a means uh, to to transact was not covering um, a large enough market that you could grow this business uh, to to tap into the larger uh, customer base and so Al, Al, the creation of Alipay obviously played a big role in facilitating um, but I think. Also, there's this concept of, of connection. And, you know, eBay's business model was really premised on taking uh, commissions off transactions. And, um, uh, you know, part of the problem is you never really were able to connect uh, as a buyer to the seller and have a conversation. So one of the things that uh, Taobao created was this Ali Wong Wong communication tool that actually allowed the buyers and sellers to have conversations and even bargain with one another. That created much more of a human interaction, uh, and uh, you know the payment um, you know was done through through Alipay, but there was no commission taken, so there was no deterrent to go off platform to actually do this. Um, and as as you know, everyone knows, uh, Taobao didn't charge fees for many years. Um, and they eventually, once they got the critical mass, then they were able to monetize through advertising. But it was the it was the human kind of element that I think was very important in maintaining kind of the uh, the engagement of the customers with um, the, the buyers, so that the merchants, so that they could they could uh, have a more authentic kind of human experience. Um, and and I think finally the. The way that the team framed the market, addressable market, uh, everyone talks about how eBay had like, you know, some say 70%. I've read 95% market share when, when Taobao was trying to start out. Um, but the Taobao leaders at the time, they didn't look at the addressable market just as those who were only online doing purchasing already uh, through, through the internet on e-commerce. Um, that was about 3 million um, users at the time. And you could say that each net had dominant market share. But if you think about the total netizens number of people online in China around that time, it was more like 90 million. So that could be one addressable market. And then there was the total consumer base, which was like 700 million. Um, and Taobao used the approach like our market is not the 3 million, it's not the 90 million, it's the 700 million that we want to engage. So they actually used more traditional means to market um, to these uh, potential e uh, Taobao users um, and did a lot of offline engagement in terms of training and, and uh, you know, these kinds of sessions to kind of educate the population. And um, I think that was also part of the framing that allowed them to kind of grow the market in a way that, you know, went beyond what most would expect. Right. So not trying to, not trying to just dominate a market that's predefined, but really, uh, which, you know, I guess, uh, I would think like any good startup should be doing like how are we going to create a new market, right? Something that people didn't even know that they needed or that was possible. And, and let's make that happen. Um, it's interesting to hear also, cause it, it's, it's a, it's actually the same thing that we've, I've heard from like Amazon, but they, they present it for a different reason, you know, that they're, you know, people are making antitrust, uh, you know, raising antitrust issues with them and saying, you know, you dominate the online comic, you know, the e-commerce market, and they're saying, well, but, you know, people can buy stuff lots and lots of places. And if you buy, consider all the things people buy or all the other ways people could buy stuff that we sell, we only still have, you know, a tiny fraction ah. of that. So so don't worry. <laughs> um, so a lot of it, uh, 
Depends. Depends what agenda. I mean, they, they it's the same perspective as Taobao, but more in a, in a defensive sense. Yes. But it all it all depends on what agenda you want to have when you frame these things. Yes. Exactly. Um, so, uh, how about uh, well, just to just to jump into uh, uh, something that sounds fun. So, uh, tell me about wild dogs, bulls, and rabbits. Great. Uh, you're talking about the Alibaba Zoo. No, <laughs> uh, a, a bunch of a bunch of animals. We we use this um, back in the day too. There is an Alibaba Zoo, by the way, and it's essentially the collection of uh, characters that represent each of the businesses. Um, you know, like there's a, a a cow for B2B, and there's a cat for Tmall, and there's um, bird for uh, you know our messaging platform. But this is. Um, this was an earlier sort of, uh, how should I say, framework that uh, Savio Kwan, our uh, Alibaba's first COO, came up with in terms of how to evaluate and develop your people. And so this concept of wild dogs, bulls, and rabbits, think about a, um, a framework where you have a, a, a y-axis, which is your business performance, and your x-axis, which is your uh, values. And what you try and do um, is assess you know how somebody is performing relative to their their business performance but also their adherence or belief in living the company values now this might sound a bit strange because like how where do values come into play like evaluating people's values in a, a company and this isn't like a moral judgment on the people but it's really like you know how how much do they believe in exemplify the things that are important to a company in terms of um, how you know we make decisions and, and kind of how we prioritize um, you know uh, things in, in 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 our day to day actions um, and so the the way it works is um, uh, a dog is someone who is neither a good performer in business nor a good uh, example of living the company values. And that's somebody that probably isn't um, doing well uh, at the company and uh, is is in serious need of help or uh, should probably, you know, be um, let go. Uh, You have someone who uh, on the other spectrum, the stars or, um, and, and they, in, and uh, we also referred to them as bulls because there's a kind of a, this is newbie, like a bull ring, we call it. So if they're both strong in performance and in their values, they're in the upper right quadrant. Um, so those, those are the opposite of dogs. And then you've got these mm-hmm. uh, individuals who might not be good business performers, but are exemplary in their values. And we call them the rabbits. They're on the lower right quadrant. Uh, and those are people who can actually be nurtured and developed because they have the good values and they just need to up their skill level and performance. And so you try and really focus on them in terms of uh, guiding them to perform better in, in, on the business side. And then you have something called the wild dogs. They're really good performers, but they don't exemplify the values. Sometimes they might even be the opposite of the values that you want to um, promote. And those are the most dangerous ones because they look really good in terms of, uh, you know, their contributions to the company, but they can also, um, uh, how should I say, uh, undermine the kind of company culture that you're trying to build because, you know, they're doing things, they're cutting corners or maybe they're not, um, you know, uh, reflecting the things that are important in, in, in the company values, but they're still getting the results. And that can become a cancer because people start to emulate the best, the better performers and think that that's okay. And that's where you have to be very um, cognizant of what to do with these types of, of um, employees. And this was something that I think helped shape the company early on so you could create the right culture um, at a startup that you know very much depended on, uh, on these uh, aspects. That seems tough, though. If you have someone who is like a, a top salesperson, or you know, a uh, you know one of your best coders, and they're just you know doing doing a great job on the thing that they're supposed to do, but but uh, I don't know. Do you really you know how how would you well that, uh, that how would you ease them out you know in, in that kind of context? Well, so that's why you know early on in the company, 
um, we would do these quarterly valuations and talk about, you know, how each of the staff is doing. And we would talk about, you know, the values and whether or not, you know, we sort of believe that um, they were being reflected in, it, we, we call it the process, like, you know, how do you make decisions? And we, and it's, it's a pretty in-depth kind of personal conversation. Um, but it's, it's something that is, at that time, it was you know fifty percent percent of the value the valuation, and um, and and you know I think that it was a hard decision, and that's why this framework was so important. I think in shaping kind of the company in the direction because uh, those conversations were were difficult to have, but 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 very critical. And you know there are examples um, where in the history of the company, I think there was this blacklist scandal in 2010, where you had these salespeople who were um, signing up a large number of accounts out of uh, this Fujian uh, area, uh, Putian. And um, there was a lot of pressure on the company to perform um, uh, at that time. And, uh, but these were, a lot of these accounts were actually fraudulent. And, you know, these salespeople were in um, kind of, you know, collaboration with these these um, fraudsters, um, but they wanted to sign up the accounts for their performance measures. And the the actual sales amount was immaterial. It was less than, I think, like 1% of the total revenue or 5% of the total revenue. Yet it was so important symbolically that, um, you know, this, this not only uh, led to decision of dismissal of those sales managers who allowed this to happen, but also the CEO and COO of the Alibaba.com uh, entity uh, because of the lack of, um, you know, management and, uh, you know, uh, the uh, of this very important issue. If, if it had gotten any worse, then it could have really destroyed the company. I think the point that Jack uh, and everyone was trying to make is that this is uh, a very, very important issue that we cannot ignore. And um, that, I think, is, is, is an example of how, how big uh, a decision was made around an issue like this. Now, that's, that's a nice example, actually. I, I'm going to um, plug a friend's book. Um, a very friend, Ben Ho, who teaches at uh, Vassar and sometimes Columbia, um, wrote a book uh, last year called Trust. And it's, uh, it's, he's an economist, and it's all about um, how trust, you know, we th- sounds like a kind of airy-fairy concept, but when you think about, like, how, what, what businesses are for and, and how people do, do business, you know, it, it, a lot of it really does come down to that, right? If Alibaba, as a platform, you know, designed to connect real people to, you know, real, real people selling stuff to customers and wanting people to have confidence that their transaction is going to work, you know, if that, if that falls apart, um, or, you know, or if investors feel like, oh, you know, they're just creating kind of vapor and it's not real, you know, they're not a real platform. They're just trying to make it look like more than it is Then that, uh, yeah, that can totally collapse the whole endeavor. So absolutely um, trust crucial kind of to maintain. Yeah, no, I mean, I think your friend, his book is, is, is touching on a very important point because without trust in any marketplace, uh, you can't have, uh, you know, a vibrant kind of, uh, you know, community that that's willing to transact with one another, and I think that was also the driving force in in this decision. Um, trust. We we our our, our latest or, or Alibaba's latest value system. I should point out, like I keep saying, our, but I no longer work for the company. But um, tr- trust makes it simple. Is is the new sort of uh, value of the six values they have um, in their in their new iteration uh, because it it. it it is so critical as a foundation of any marketplace. And without that, um, things become very complicated. That's a, that's a nice slogan. I like that one a lot. I think that's, uh, captures a lot of things about, um, yeah, about what makes a platform. Well, about the world. Sure. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, also, yeah, just so narrowly about a platform business, but also like, yeah, just about everything is like, how do we, how do we get trust? How do we make that, um, work? Um, and yeah, well, so so let's um, as as the last uh, couple talks, I do want to hear more about um, you know you mentioned that uh, well I mentioned like you know this is part of China's broader development, but like let's let's talk more concretely like how do you see Alibaba as having contributed to um, uh, not just kind of the prosperity of 
you know, a few people, but to, to the ordinary person um, or even poorer people in China. And then how uh, I want you to talk about your efforts to kind of uh, roll that out uh, on a, through the Alibaba Global Initiative. Sure. Well, I mean, for me, this is a big reason why I, I stayed at the company for the amount of time I did and, and why, um, as you mentioned, I, I went back to the company after leaving for business school. And then um, I, uh, you know, I think that the initial um, thrust of the company when it started to help small businesses was an attractive one to me because who doesn't want to help those who are being underserved, but also represent an important part of the society. Uh, so small businesses was, was that is in was and is uh, very much a focus of the platform in terms of empowerment. But what um, I think people started to realize, you know, with the advent of Taobao and then Alipay and many of the other businesses, it really started to uh, seep into the everyday society in China with the consumers and, and the entrepreneurs in particular. And um, it, it was leading to job creation in ways that people didn't expect, particularly amongst um, the younger generation where you had an increase, you know, of, of college graduates that were um, coming to the market and, you know, Initially, the, the the plum job was a state-owned enterprise or working in the government, and then it became multinationals, and then it started to become, you know, um, being an entrepreneur. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say – I think multinationals were still very much the attractive job for many of the top graduates back in the early 2000. But for those who couldn't get jobs at those uh, fancy firms, they still needed to find something to do, and many of them started to – uh, move towards e-commerce. And um, so youth employment, I think, was another aspect of this. Uh, but, you know, probably most profoundly in terms of what I saw was how it affected the rural areas. And in 2012, I decided to kind of take some time off and do a walk, walkabout, so to speak, in the rural parts of, of China. Jack said, go to the poorest areas uh, in the country and stay there. And if you're comfortable, then move and go somewhere else where you'll be even less comfortable. And if you're not comfortable at that area, then stay longer and ask yourself why. And I thought that was a very strange kind of um, a suggestion. But uh, when I did that, uh, it, it actually helped me see things in a way that I was probably, um, it was an awakening in terms of, you know, where problems exist in society and, and what is it that is important to me and what I want to, you know, how do I respond to that? And what I saw was the hollow, the hollowed villages that everybody talked about where a lot of the young working people leave the villages and they leave their children who are infants behind and the grandparents. And it was probably one of the most depressing things to go through a village and see really old people and holding infants. And, um, I remember sitting in a town square and there was some performance there in Guizhou province, uh, one of the poorest, areas in China. And it was just like, you know, this kind of felt like a ghost town and you had old people performing with in front of these little kids who were being held by grandparents. And um, I went back to uh, um, Hangzhou after that to meet some of the staff uh, just because I, I was taking the time off. I wanted to share with them what I had seen. And one of my colleagues said, hey, Brian, well, if you're if, if you're concerned about the rural development areas, you should really look at these Taobao villages. And the Taobao villages was a phenomenon that kind of happened organically, uh, where people will uh, set up e-commerce businesses in the villages, uh, not only to procure and buy products, which were sorely in need because a lot of the villages didn't have uh, access to you know quality products. Um, you'd be surprised some, some of the most uh, number of fake products sold in China is actually to the rural communities because they don't know the difference. So that was solving mm. one problem. But the other problem was actually creating jobs. And these communities that were creating these Taobao villages were either figuring out how to sell their, their local produce to the urban markets, or they were actually creating whole new industries uh, in their village areas um, and becoming very, very prosperous. So I've got, you know, there's plenty of stats to share on this, but some of the villages I visited, um, they were able to raise their um, per capita income by five times uh, within like five, six years, thanks to e-commerce. And they were not only stopping the outflow of 
populations from leaving the villages, they're actually able to attract more people to the villages to be part of that phenomenon. So to me, that was very meaningful and impactful. And um, I, I, I saw how Alibaba is really kind of transforming uh, the society, both urban and rural, through uh, its e-commerce creations. So how did that then, you, you um, I think you set up, or at least you were leading the Alibaba Global Initiative, what it, and sort of taking this, uh, these ideas on the road. Um, tell, tell us about, um, about that. Well, so the Alibaba Global Initiatives was a program that Jack um, asked us to set up to share the learnings from the last 20 years. So, you know, over those 20 years, Alibaba created an e-commerce ecosystem, a payment and finance uh, ecosystem. It created a logistics network and a cloud computing business. And how all four of those fit together, um, uh, you know, was really led to this phenomenon that I created, uh, that I that I um, mentioned in terms of the, the the social impact. So I think one of the things that Jack was really excited about is, is you know, engaging entrepreneurs from all over the world and, and kind of sharing with them our experience at Alibaba so that they could take whatever is applicable and apply it to their markets. And so we would, we would invite entrepreneurs from Southeast Asia, from Africa, Latin America, to come to Hangzhou and kind of see the things that we were doing, but also how it was affecting society. And then they would go back to their countries. These were all you know, tech entrepreneurs. And in many cases, um, they would apply these principles. It could be um, something uh, as simple as kind of the technology that they observed or the product you know, like uh, in terms of e-commerce or, or, you know, the payment systems that, that they saw or the logistics, or it could be something even more fundamental in terms of how they looked at their business and how they re-geared it um, around a, a, a stronger mission and vision and how they um, integrated that into the, the larger ethos of the organization. And, um, you know, as a result of that, um, there's been some really interesting um, stories that have come from uh, the the learnings that they took from from those uh, trainings, um, uh, you know, whether it's in in Malaysia, this this uh, one entrepreneur created this insurance tech business that initially he was just you know he's an ex banker and he thought it would be um, worthwhile to try and sell insurance online, but after seeing the impact of kind of Ali's ecosystem in China, he said I'm going to focus on what they call the B40, the bottom 40 population, and figure out a way to uh, create and sell affordable insurance for people who are in the informal economy. And now he's the largest, mm. um, you know, insurance tech company in, uh, you know, his region, um, providing it to all the delivery drivers like Food Panda and, and, and whatnot, and providing insurance to e-commerce platforms like Shopee. Um, and that's been breakthrough because it's allowed people who are vulnerable in society previously to have protection. And, um, other examples like in Rwanda uh, and in, in Kenya and Nigeria that, that you know, relate to payment, uh, fintech models um, and logistics. Um, so to me, that was just like the capstone to all the work that we had done at the company in the prior 20 years is how to share that and enable entrepreneurs um, the opportunity to see what is possible and then try and support them in, in the ways that we could. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a wonderful way to take, you know, like you said, the, the learning and experience of, of one uh, one company in one country um, and uh, and hopefully bring it to the rest of the world. That's always been the, the question for development people is like, okay, China's had this great development success story, but what what can be exported? And it's and even I think, you know, the Chinese uh, experts is like, well, don't just try to do exactly what we did. But yeah. like, there's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a careful process of like figuring out like, what here is useful and what can be localized to your uh, your own your own context, but there's definitely is is a lot to be um, shared, and I think uh, you know nice nice to see that kind of sharing of information insight uh, across um, you know not just flowing from you know the the U.S. with its one successful model to the rest of the world, um, but uh, you know sort of what we call South South cooperation and yep. uh, as well. That's right. Um, so yeah. 
So uh, last thing I wanted to ask you um, is uh, where do you see, um, what do you see the, how do you see the tech sector now in China? You know, a ton has happened even in the past couple of years since you've been working on this book, you know, uh, Xi Jinping has really consolidated power a lot and imposed a lot more regulation on the tech sector. Um, there's been the COVID pandemic, obviously, and China's commitment to this dynamic zero COVID strategy. And then on top of that, there's increasing tensions with the China, with the, uh, the U.S. and China that have limited a lot of forms of interchange um, across all domains, but especially in the area of high tech. So, so where do you th- see things going? Yeah, you know, Peter, since the time I started writing the book up till now, the, I mean, there have been seismic shifts in, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the world. And um, so, you know, even I am trying to kind of figure out how all this is going to play out. But um, the way I look at what's happening in China today, it's certainly very tough for the tech sector. It's been tough for many sectors due to um, regulatory changes and, and, and policy changes. I think um, what we're seeing in, in the China tech space is, is a maturation of certain areas um, where, you know, Previously, in the last 20 years, um, it's been a late-touch approach where the government provides the infrastructure and the enabling environment for the digital economy to grow and prosper, Um, and they didn't get too involved, and that's what allowed the innovation to happen. But now that certain areas have matured, like, say, fintech and and, and related areas, um, it requires regulation in order to uh, protect uh, consumers and also ensure that, you know, um, some of these concerns about data privacy and antitrust are kind of uh, managed effectively. Now, this isn't a unique um, uh, sort of problem or challenge or concern. I think governments all over the world, uh, whether it be Europe or U.S., have the same concerns about big tech. But I think it's really the methods that uh, governments use to manage this that differ. And in some ways, you know, what China has experienced is a very sort of blunt um sort of, you know, approach that has um, had, you know, an impact in terms of things like investor confidence or, or whatnot. But I do think, uh, you know, it's time will tell, you know, in terms of how this plays out. I think there's also an upgrade uh, on on the government is desires to upgrade the kind of um, quality of China's industrial capacity. I think that what they're trying to do is shift, uh, obviously, the flow of capital to the areas that are of strategic importance to the country. That's things like, you know, green tech, alternative energy, semiconductors, life sciences. I think that that those areas will continue to thrive um, moving forward, and there will be plenty of business opportunities for um, investors and entrepreneurs. Um, I think that the ones like e-commerce. Uh, and payments, they're so large that they will absolutely continue. They're, they're, they're an integral part of the ecosystem. But, you know, it's really a matter of what where the growth opportunities are in those sectors. People probably need to be more selective. You know, the industrialization of the supply chain is definitely something that will continue. And that relates to e-commerce because it ties into the, the demand data that is generated from the e-commerce uh, retail side. And then, you know, a company needs to figure out how to gear itself to produce in a more efficient way. So if you're asking me, like, you know, my thoughts, I I think it's really you have to put it in the context of of the country and what they're trying to achieve. And hopefully the entrepreneurs um, will be able to uh, see this and adapt and, you know, find the, um, the opportunities for them to contribute to the growth in in the areas that are now priorities. Yeah, it's a uh, definitely a changing environment. Um, not not the uh, not the wild west of the nineties and two thousands. Um, it seems like, but you know, as you said, you know, there's a reason. You know, the wild west in the U.S. is also not the wild west anymore. We're not like abandoning ships in the San Francisco Harbor or run, yeah. run and get gold or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we've seen it on both sides, yeah, Peter. Does. You know, people like mm-hmm. us um, are. I would say beneficiaries of being able to kind of um, go between the East and the West. And I guess what I would hope is that we don't lose sight of that. I think there's so much in the way of uh, political tension today, but uh, you know, at the foundation of all this was kind of, you know, both the business and the cultural kind of connections. Um, And I, I would hope that, 
you know, we, we can also recognize how that connection between, say, U.S. and China or Silicon Valley and, in, in, you know, the tech communities in China actually help benefit both sides. Um, but, you know, there's, there is concern now um, around, you know, these geopolitical issues. And so how do you sort of manage that, but at the same time allow these, the foundation to uh, continue to, you know, to develop and grow? Yeah, that's the, that's the challenge. Um, all right. So, um, I know you're, so you're still based in Shanghai, but, um, but you're, li- you're in the U S now and, uh, doing, uh, you know, focusing on your book for the time being, what are you, uh, what are you going to be involved in next? Well, Do you know yet? Y- sorry. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, yeah, what, what do you, what's okay. next for you after the, after the, the book winds down? Yeah. You know, so, so for me, Peter, um, uh, what's important to me is still this this kind of east west relationship and trying to figure out as as any entrepreneur would i guess you know how to play within the and adapt to the you know the new landscape i i think there are areas of collaboration as i was just mentioning that still remain very important for the two countries um and we have bigger issues that we cannot solve individually like you know climate change and and, and these these issues that are existential, you know, public health. So I'm going to do what I can in my capacity to figure out how to continue to bridge those, um, you know, communication and, and engagement. I'm focusing right now on a, a passion project, which is really um, trying to use, you know, storytelling in, in media to bridge cultural understanding between um, China and the West, um, particularly amongst the youth. So uh, I have a platform called Radii, uh, R-A-D-I-I dot co. It's, it's a media platform that really uh, tells stories about, um, you know, youth culture uh, from the, uh, you know, from, from the greater China region, sort of the Chinese diaspora. And it's things around music, art, design, film, um, even some tech and, uh, and you know, sustainability um, these are topics that I think are very important to you know the younger generation and also us. But um, I think it's the younger generations that are really continue to thrive and and and, and pursue creative ideas that I think represent um, the consciousness of of you know that that younger sort of uh, generation. And so I hope that people can see through these storytelling that. You know, we have a lot more in common than different, and that China is not uh, a monolith. Um, uh, and the Chinese culture is is very diverse, uh, and you know that's something I'm focusing my time on. The second would be just continuing to back, um, you know, really high potential entrepreneurs who who are doing uh, meaningful ventures, and, and continue to share with them some of the lessons that we learned from the Alibaba experience. Great. Well, um, yeah, I definitely, I follow uh, Radii on Twitter and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's good, good for me also to like, just get uh, a sense of, you know, just things that are happening in people's lives, like you said, in pop culture and, yeah. um, and other, uh, you know, just kind of regular stuff, yeah. um, as well as all the geopolitics and yes. the investment and the financial details, right? You know, it's, uh, I think, again, you know, that's where you and I started is just like going to China in our, in our 20s and like, meeting a bunch of people and saying, gee, you know, these are, they're different, you know, they're not like people back home, but they're people and they're, they're great. And, yeah. you know, there's so much benefit in uh, these two countries uh, working together and, and uh, you know, our people's getting to know each other better. Absolutely. Um, let me, let me also, I guess, pitch uh, on that, on that same theme. Um, there's on, I'm part of the national committee on us, China mm. relations, uh, public intellectuals program and on, um, and two years ago, you actually joined me for this uh, in a in a remote version. But they have a on November sixteenth um, at seven p.m. Eastern. They're going to have a uh, telecast where former Ambassador uh, John Huntsman will Great. be talking about the U.S.-China relations. Um, and there's also uh, local partners uh, in various communities. So um, so for instance, at USF, we'll have a, a little event where we'll watch the telecast, and then I have some other. Um, experts coming to join me to talk about what's happening and anyone listening to this sort of wherever you are there's probably a university or other um place where you can join in this and not just listen to the you know the uh, the famous guy talk but also have a conversation with um other people in your community about 
you know, what's going on with China, you know, how, how should we uh, deal with these many challenges we face in the relationship? Um, and how is that affecting your community? Sounds like a great session. Um, all right. So yeah. I think we'll, yeah. And so, and, and Brian was, was kind enough to uh, join us um, during our, our pandemic version of this uh, a couple of years ago, which all, all remote, but I think it's, it'll be even better uh, this year to actually, you know, again, just have members of the community get, get together uh, and, you know, have, have active discussions um, on this topic. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so with that, let's, um, I'm going to say thanks. And um, this has been great. Uh, and wish you all the best with, uh, with the book. Um, I should say the title of the book again. Um, it's uh, The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World by Brian A. Wong. And uh, everyone should uh, go out and get themselves a copy. Thanks so much.